Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew as we continue our series on Christmas joy. We've come to the second in that series. We looked last week at the famous annunciation of the angel Gabriel to Mary. And this week we're looking at uh, Joseph's response to the same uh, Christmas joy. Last week was shocking joy. And then today we're looking at divine joy under the theme of Christmas joy. So Matthew chapter 1, verses uh, verses 18 to 25. And as we come to God's word, let's pray. Our Father God, we do ask that this Christmas we would experience the joy that is on offer in your gospel. And we ask uh, for your help as we come now to your word. Spirit, move among us. Clarify our thoughts. Heal broken hearts. And motivate and inspire us to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. So friends, Matthew chapter 1, and uh, beginning at verse 18, let's hear God's word together. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. The great uh, southern preacher, W.A. Criswell, and the last sermon he preached in his uh, church, First Baptist Church in uh, Dallas, Texas, one of the great American pulpits, in the last sermon he preached in that church, he told the following, the following story. It's about a congregational meeting, and for those of us here this morning perhaps are not familiar with the typical pattern of how certain kinds of churches work at least, that a congregational meeting is a sort of business meeting or uh, administrative meeting for the wider group of people who've committed to that local church. Anyway, the story is about a congregational meeting. And in that congregational meeting, W.A. Criswell told this story in the last sermon he preached at that famous 
American pulpit, First Baptist Dallas, that uh, in the congregational meeting, a motion was made according to Robert's rules of order. Uh, Robert's rules of order is how these kind of meetings are often functioned according I remember someone once saying to me, who's Robert and why do I have to follow his rules? But anyway, um, in Robert's rules of order. And so the person made a motion, and uh, the motion was that the church would purchase chandeliers for uh, the sanctuary. And it was duly seconded, and then it was open to the floor for discussion. And someone else put up their hand and began to speak, and he said, well, I'm against it uh, for the following uh, three reasons. Here's why I'm against putting uh, us uh, getting chandeliers. Uh, for these three reasons. First, we have no one to play them. Second, I'm against anything that I can't spell. And third, what this church really needs is more light. can be a challenge, I think, for many of us to get through the churchiness to the Christ. And that can especially be true for a place like Wheaton, where there are many, many, many churches, religious organizations, many, many good uh, religious emphases. But it can therefore be a challenge to get through all of that to the real thing. And some of you have had perhaps even bad experience of religion, and that can be an additional challenge to get through that. And as we think uh, this morning about divine joy, our task will be to pull back the curtain of the religiosity and the churchiness to experience the real thing. Now, this is the second in our series on Christmas joy. We looked at shocking joy last week, and this morning it's going to be divine joy. We just need to review a little bit in our minds so that we don't lose track of where we're going. We defined last week what joy really is. Is. This is C.S. Lewis's definition. It's important to keep clear. Joy is an unsatisfied desire whose desire is greater than any other satisfaction. What a marvelous definition of C.S. Lewis. Therefore, joy is not happiness, nor is it even a certain kind of happiness. It's something other. An unsatisfied desire whose desire itself is greater than any other satisfaction. I like to think of it as the sound of trumpets coming over the horizon. Or perhaps this morning we should think of the sound of a saxophone. It lifts your spirits. Not yet satisfied, but you now have the desire. And it's greater than any other satisfaction. So we need to keep that definition clear in our minds. Second, last uh, week we also made sure that we understood that all the announcements of Christmas 
in the New Testament have the umbrella idea of joy. We saw last week that that word greetings can well be translated as rejoice. And then we saw last week, didn't we, that as we thought of shocking joy or the surprise of joy, that we can look for joy in the wrong places with the wrong people and instead we need to receive grace and experience God's presence. But then how? Well, then this morning, that's when we come to divine joy. And I'm going to give us two ways that we can be stuck in the religiosity of it and then three ways to experience the divine joy itself as we look at this briefly this morning. So first of all, trying to be good will not give us divine joy. Uh, Look at verse 19. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, there are different translations that different Bibles have for that phrase, just man. One translation uh, has it as Joseph being faithful to the law. It has in its meaning the idea that he was the kind of person who was attempting to do the right religious thing. He was a good man. A religious man, he wanted to be faithful to the law. There's no sense here in the text that Joseph was wrong to have that desire, to want to be a good man and being a just man. And yet, if he'd stayed merely there, he would have missed the divine joy of the birth of Jesus And so often it's true, isn't it, that we can keep focusing on merely human religious duty, law, being good. But if we stay there, we can miss the real thing. So many people who have had experiences of church and want to follow and do the right thing, can get stuck in merely trying to be a good person. It's not that it was wrong for Joseph to be a good person. Of course not. We we want people to try to follow the law. But it wouldn't of its own give him divine joy. And many people find themselves stuck there. Trying to be good will not itself give us divine joy. Second, listening to our fears will not give us divine joy. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Do not fear. Now, once again, there's no sense in the text that uh, Joseph, being a good man, that fear in itself is always the wrong emotion to have. Indeed, we know, don't we, that there is a right kind of fear that we should have as Christians. Uh, We are told in the Bible to fear God. 
Indeed, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is to orientate your life around the principle that God knows what he's talking about and to follow what God says in his word is wise. It is the right way to live. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is a right kind of fear, but there is a wrong kind of fear too. Uh, There can be a wrong kind of fear even in religious circles. Uh, There there can be a kind of scaremongering in church circles. Now, those of us who've been around college church for a while will know that I have no embarrassment about elevating the awesome power of God and his infinite majesty and glory Nor, when the text in front of us speaks about matters of eternity, heaven and hell, I am absolutely convinced of the importance of, without embarrassment, talking about the appropriate kind of fear of God, even in matters of heaven and hell, and the judgment to come. There is indeed a right kind of fear that pulpits can generate but there is also a kind of wrong, a wrong kind of fear that can come in religious circles. When I speak to people after church on a Sunday morning or chat to people during the week, I hear often about experiences in religious circles, not here at College Church, I trust, but in other circles of people feeling intimidated, uh, scared, bullied from the pulpit I suppose there's a reason why they call it a bully pulpit well that's not right is it it's all too human there's also a wrong kind of fear that can take place in terms of our attitude to culture and society we can be filled with fear about where society is going and what's going to happen to culture. And, and, and Now listen, I, 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 we can all talk about what we think is wrong today about this, that and the other element in our society. And, and no doubt there are things that are wrong that are going on. But if we live with the right kind of fear of God, then we need have no fear of the future for God's people. If you read the Bible to the end and you read the last page of Revelation, you'll know it turns out all okay in the end, or more than okay, very good, to God's glory. That's the wrong kind of fear, isn't there, that can take place among Christians. They look at the culture around. I used to like the, uh, the joke of another preacher used to talk about when he was first starting as a preacher, he would often say that he felt that society was going to the dogs, but he had stopped saying that out of respect for the dogs. And we can feel that, can't we? But it can be a wrong kind of fear. It stops us really entering into the divine joy that is on offer. As we're influenced by media and scaremongering all around us. 
But then there is also a more personal kind of fear, an anxiety, a worry. Many people do struggle with anxiety. And the last thing I want to do by mentioning that this morning is to make you feel in any way shamed or uh, embarrassed if you struggle with anxiety. Many people do. And if you do struggle with anxiety, and when I talk to people about it, the, 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 it can be very unhelpful to offer simplistic solutions for such feelings of worry or anxiety. But if we are to experience divine joy, we need to move through our fears. And to realize that God is bigger than what we're anxious about. What's the joke? Don't let your fears get the best of you. Even Moses started out as a basket case. I think at some level most people even though we project confidence and conviction, most people inside feel like a bit of a basket case and have anxiety. But we mustn't let our fears stop us from experiencing divine joy. Well, how can we do that? Well, here are the first of three ways to do that. First of all, Divine joy comes as we grasp the overall message of the Bible, verse uh, 22. Matthew tells us, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. In other words, the message of Christmas, the birth of Jesus to Mary, all this is in fulfillment of what Matthew will now quote from the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. In other words, there is a shape to the Bible, an overall pattern. In other words, there is a story to the Bible. In college church circles every now and then, I think there's a curriculum that is used here called the storyline of the Bible. There's a storyline to the Bible. The Bible is not a collection of random, disconnected bits of religious information. It is not a book of regulations or rituals. It has a single theme spoken to from many, many different perspectives and angles. All this is to fulfill. Where is it fulfilled? In the birth of the baby, his life and death and resurrection. And it is all about that. But until we grasp that, 
we, we won't be able to experience divine joy because we'll think that the book of the Bible is just a list of regulations and rituals and rules. One important and I think helpful question to ask ourselves is, is this. When you come to the book of Genesis and you see the beginning of the story, the question that is asked right there at the beginning is, who will be the serpent crusher? That is, who will destroy the works of evil? Who will put to death all the hurts and harms and sadnesses of this life? Who would it be? That's the question of the Bible. Will it be Cain? No. Would it be Abraham? Well, certainly not fully. Not fulfilled. Would it be Moses? Not fulfilled. Would it be David? Not fulfilled. Where is it fulfilled? In Jesus. Who puts to death, death. And ends evil and sadness. It's all about him. It's very important that we grasp, therefore, the overall message of the Bible. And it's a huge need in contemporary church circles. A survey was done in 2021 that showed that only 6% of U.S. adults had a biblical Worldview, 6%. Now, I'm sure it's a larger percentage than that here at College Church. But nonetheless, however that is impacted here, only 6% of U.S. adults have a biblical worldview, grasp the overall message of the Bible, and have had it impact how they think and feel. The <laughs> same set of questions was asked a year later in 2022 of U.S. pastors. And according to this survey, only 37% of U.S. pastors have a biblical worldview. One in three, roughly speaking, of U.S. pastors have a biblical worldview. Of course, that's why at College Church we spend time in the Scriptures, so we might grasp the overall message of the Bible. Second, have divine joy, and this is the fourth point, but the second of the ways to do it, we need to get past trying to be good, and that won't give us divine joy, not listening to our fears, grasp the overall message of the Bible, and then divine joy comes as we understand why the incarnation is necessary to save us. Verse 23, uh, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, one of the most fascinating things about this text is the way that we are told that they shall call his name Emmanuel, and then what do they end up calling his name, verse 25? Jesus. So how is it that they calling his name Jesus is in any way in obedience to the command to call his name Emmanuel? And the answer to that is that what they are obeying and what Matthew is teaching 
is the necessity of the incarnation for salvation. Jesus means Savior, and Emmanuel means God with us. And for us to be saved, it is necessary to have a God Savior. How important that, until we understand why the incarnation is necessary to save us, we will not have divine joy. The, the church today is wrestling with a humanized Jesus. The first four centuries of the church, that was the massive issue that drove the various creedal statements at the beginning of the church. What does it mean for Jesus to be both fully God and fully man? It's, of course, a complicated question. And they wrestle with it then, there, from different angles. Today, I think the church is wrestling with the humanized Jesus. But Jesus is fully God. Not a little bit God. Not partly God. Fully God. What does that mean? Well, for instance, it means that if someone says they believe in God... But when they listen to the Jesus of the Bible, they say that Jesus is not God. Whatever God they believe in, it cannot be the God of the Bible. Because Jesus is fully God, and therefore if someone believes in God, when they see Jesus, they'll say, he's God. Isn't that right? Uh, the great ancient text that wrestled with this was by an early church leader called Anselm. His book, Cur Deus Homo, Why the God-Man, and like all great books, is actually quite simple. His argument is very simply this. Why is it necessary that the incarnation happens for us to be saved? Here's why, Anselm argued, essentially. It is necessary because the one who must pay the penalty for our sins That's us, because they are our sins. And yet, being human, we cannot pay the price, the infinite price for the penalty of our sins. And so it's necessary that it is a God, man, who pays the price. I know it's a a complicated truth, but we must understand at least why the incarnation is necessary to save us. When it comes to such complicated truths, I've always loved the story of Corrie ten Boom in this regard. Corrie ten Boom, one of the great Christian leaders who survived the Holocaust, she tells a story one time when she asked her father, she was at about 10 years, 10 years of age, something like that, about 10 years old. She was on a train station And as a 10-year-old girl, she asked her father a very difficult question that was really beyond her years to understand. And as her father thought about it, he was silent for a moment, and then he did the following. Next to them was a huge suitcase, far too big for a 10-year-old girl to carry. And in response to her question that was too much for her as a 10-year-old girl to be able to understand, she said, he said, Corrie, Lift up the suitcase. And she said, uh, Papa, I cannot. It's too big. And he said, Corrie, lift up the suitcase. She said, Papa, I cannot. It's too big. 
And then he lifted up the suitcase, and they got into the train, and they sat down. He said, do you understand why I asked you to lift up the suitcase? It's because in the same way that that suitcase was too big for you to carry, so the question you asked me is too big for you to carry as a 10-year-old girl. Until you're older, you'll have to let me carry it for you. And some of these big questions of life, we have to let the Father God carry for us. The God-man Jesus, it's necessary for us to uh, for us to have divine joy, we need to understand it, but we, we're never fully going to be able to grasp it, of course, and therefore we let the Father carry it for us. But it is the path to divine joy. Philippians chapter 2 teaches us this. That great book of joy, Philippians, at the heart is the message of the incarnation. Well, finally then, divine joy comes as we respond with a personal commitment to the God-man, Jesus. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Joseph did as he was commanded. He made a personal commitment. A personal commitment is choice plus action. And he did as he was commanded. So here we have in the text a clear emphasis on the sovereign grace of God who moved heaven and earth quite literally to send his son, his initiative, not ours. Not our religious rituals and regulations. What he did, not what we do. And yet such a message must also be responded to. As a personal commitment that is required if we are to experience divine joy. I, I like the cartoon the Dilbert cartoon, which I think may still be around, I'm not sure, but in one of the Dilbert cartoons, there's a wonderful little piece where Dilbert is being encouraged to plan, and he says, my plan is this, to act randomly and see what will happen. That's my plan. There are some people who live their lives like that, aren't they? They never really get organized. They just live randomly. It's not a good not a good strategy for success. But there are many, many, many people who treat Christmas like that. Just let it wash over them and never actually respond with a personal commitment. But of course we must if we're to experience divine joy. Delaying Commitment is a commitment to delay. There are people after Jesus. Let's hide him. Let's think. Carpenter, 
fisherman's friend, disturber of religious comfort. Let's put him in a purple cassock and give him a position of respect. They'll never think of looking there. Let's think. His dialect may betray him. His tongue is of the masses. Let's teach him Latin and 17th century English. They'll never think of listening there. Let's think. Humble. Nowhere to lay his head. We'll build a palace for him. We'll fill it with brass and silence. It's sure to throw them off. There are people after Jesus. Quick. Let's hide him. Oh, there's no doubt human, human religiosity can undermine divine joy. But actually, we cannot hide Jesus. He's here by his Spirit. He offers divine joy. The only question is, will we have him? Let's pray together. Our Father God, we do pray that we would not merely try to be good. Oh, we know, Lord, that being a good person and being nice and kind to people is important. But, Lord, we know that our good can never be good enough. And even more, Lord, sometimes our own sense of Self-righteousness can get in the way of experiencing your sovereign grace for unrighteous people like all of us. Lord, help us not to listen to our fears. Lord, we know there is a right kind of fear. You are an awesome God and deserve Respect. It is foolish in the extreme to live life ignoring the reality of God and eternity and the question of life after death. Help us not to be foolish, but yes, to fear you. But Lord, there is a wrong kind of fear too. Help us not, Lord, to be driven by our fears to run away from you, our loving Heavenly Father. Help us, Lord, to grasp the overall message of the Bible and not look at your scriptures, your word as simply a list of do's and don'ts, but to hear the message of rescue.
the sound of trumpets from the horizon. Help us, Lord, to understand why the incarnation is necessary, why there must be a God-man to save us, and help us, therefore, to respond with a personal commitment of gratitude, of worship, and, yes, Lord, of joy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.